Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey and with me is producer Katie. Hello. Hello Katie. Regular co-host Dave Cohen is not here today, but like a hydra from Greek myth, two heads have appeared where there was one. Uh, We have two special guests, the writing team, uh, Kevin Cecil and Andy Riley. Hello Kevin. Hello. Hello Andy. Hello. Hello. Well, we're going to be spending the next two podcasts with Kevin and Andy who have written episodes of Veep and Black Books. They have created... Uh, BBC Two sci-fi sitcom Hyperdrive and the much-overlooked BBC Four sitcom The Great Outdoors. Repeated on BBC Two, I might add. So you oh, great! Say BBC Two. For, good, good. Um, they have also written the movie Romeo and Juliet and are working on a sequel. And what from that lengthy CV yeah. um, have I missed out that you just think? Oh, you've got to mention X. Uh, well, a lot of the um, uh, we had a show on American television for uh, it was it was pulled after six episodes. Okay, yeah. but, but that was that was our sitcom in America called Slacker Cats. Hardly anyone seen it. And and um, and uh, the Amanda Yanucci shows which we worked for, I, yep. I think have just been put up on like four OD or whatever it's called. You know, yeah, yeah. Those were very no no one saw them at the time. They came out just after 9-11. Oh. And, and since then, they've kind of gathered this they've reputation grown, as, yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as being classic. They, they contain the amazing sketches of Stephen Mangan saying, we are so good at television. Yeah. yeah. Which are, which <laughs> yeah. are, which are great. And some of the uh, favourite things that we've written, which is a man called Hugh Cecil, who's no relation to me, um, saying this crazy stuff. Was he an old man? Yeah, the old yes, man. Yes, 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 the old man just talking random crap. Yeah. Totally anachronistic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, probably worth mentioning that we've, we've written for about a trillion sketch shows. Yeah. Um, Little Britain mm-hmm. um, being, being heard the of that. best known. Yeah, yeah. But it comes from like the I mean, Harry and Paul and Armstrong and Miller. We've recently, we've been writing for Tracy Allman. Ah. Oh. doing the first UK series for 30 years. That is very exciting. I can still remember from Three of a Kind... Tracy Ullman over here. And also, your many, um, your many eight-year-old listeners will be glad to know that we, um, you know, we co-wrote, we adapted with David Williams, The Boy in a Dress, Absolutely. Uh, and Gangster Granny, and uh, Billionaire Boy, which Andy's yeah. not doing, but I have been doing, uh, will be on this Christmas. We'll shut up now, because we need to... Actually, no, this is we, good. We've actually yeah. entire yeah. season. Yeah. We'll be here. Yeah, that's members. right, yeah. Good <laughs> sex, guys. <laughs> this is good. This is, uh, uh, this is uh, all... Various... The- very early Channel Five projects. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Armando there, and I will mention that the first the first time I saw you, I didn't meet you. I was a runner on the last series of Friday Night Armistice, and I was sort of sticking my toe into comedy generally and thinking, oh, maybe comedy production, maybe I'll be a producer. And then what I remember that was that comedy production is really, really hard, long work. And I thought, and I watched some writers turn up at about 11 o'clock and slope in um, to this church hall in Chiswick which were the rehearsal rooms yes. you are talking and about then, us now yeah. Yeah. And, then they, and then they basically pushed off at about half two and I remember thinking to myself I could do that I could, I could turn up late yeah, and leave early um, and it was idea sessions and it obviously yeah. was very hard work but I remember just thinking the entirety of the working day that you saw <laughs> obviously I know, I know that now <laughs> but I do remember just thinking oh, I, I, think, I think I'm in the wrong job here so um, uh, so anyway that was, that, it, was fun, that, it was fun actually. it was a great show it was the Friday Night Armistice absolutely brilliant and I think I recently posted a bit of it on Facebook just to say you know they, it's, we, we keep being told that you couldn't do last week tonight in the UK mm-hmm. and you go well you can 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's still funny if you watch it back now. If you if you find it on YouTube, what, what I'm proudest of about the Friday Night Armistice is that we really were the first show in Britain of any satirist at all to have a go at Tony Blair. Um, yeah. Armando cottoned on immediately to, to exactly what Blair was. What a fraud! And and we really went for it. And also because we were trying to react against all of the political satire of the eighties and early nineties, which was uniformly from a left wing position. Yeah, yeah. We thought, well, let's have a pop at the lefties. Yeah. And a lot of the lefties really didn't like it. And of course, they eventually, in time, became the people who despised Blair. Yes. More than anyone. You were ahead of the curve <laughs> on that very much. So. Um, Let's just talk about how you got together and started out and stuff. Uh, what did you watch growing up and uh, that it sort of inspired you? And, and maybe was, was, there, was there anything where you realised, oh, people write this. Mm. The people who I can't see are behind yeah. this. And I, I could be one of those people. And that's quite a long thing. Well, is there anything that really inspired well, you growing I, we, up? We went to school together. Oh, yeah. and we've known each other since we were about 12 or 13. God, yeah. we must be sick of each other. That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, um, but, poor Andy. But, uh, I, you know, really, I'm, there, is, there was a book. There was a book called From Fringe to Flying Circus. Okay. And it had, it was, I think my dad was thinking about this, and my dad must have got it from like one of those Sunday Times book clubs or something like that. And it, it like had articles about Beyond the Fringe and the goodies. I loved the goodies, so I was really excited because I had an article about the goodies. Monty Python, I hadn't really seen, but it was a bit like the goodies. And it had like bits of, but as well as having like interviews and photos and all of this, it actually printed whole bits of script. Ah. So then I could see, I could see that there was this kind of text. And I thought, well, I'll grow up and be John Cleese. That's what I'll do. I'll, I'll do this. I'll follow the path in this book. And of course, I'm not John Cleese. But, it, you know, I did actually did go, follow the path. I did follow the path in the book. Now, I think Kevin is very weird. In this respect, because he didn't, he didn't, he didn't let on actually at those times that he was thinking of these ideas. Oh. This wasn't, wasn't. I don't recall him ever saying it. But to be to decide to be a comedy writer that early, to actually have that knowledge of self, yeah. I think is is quite unusual. I think most people end up as comedy writers having had some other idea about what they were going to do, and then they kind of get sidetracked into it and then go, "Oh no, I can do this." I yeah. mean, I probably wanted to be. But other things, I probably still thought I was going to be a pop star. Mm. You know, wow. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my my plan was to be a cartoonist, right? Because yeah. um, you have published a number of books. I, of I have the best known ones are rabbits killing themselves. Um, Perfect. The bunny suicide books, which, yep. have, which have sold in in quite a lot of countries. Yeah. So the universal language of bunny suicide. It's a bit, it wasn't until I was thirty three that I could actually turn a living at cartoons. I, I actually didn't really do it for my twenties, and eventually had to do it again. Going back to where where you first realised that writing was a thing, yeah. Possibly the young ones, because we were all insanely mad for the young ones when we were um, about twelve. Um, we went to this school where really it was compulsory. I'd, there was one kid in my class that didn't watch the young ones, and we all thought it was very odd. Um, and and so I had to devour everything I possibly could about it. And so I looked and I went, okay, Rick Mayer, well, he's in it. I understand that. And there's Ben Elton and Lise Mayer. Well, there's, there's two other people yeah. that do that. Wow, that's that's interesting. They, they, it's not just made up by the people all at once. Yeah. <laughs> that was, and maybe before that, the, um, the two Ronnies, um, they, when I was about six, they had uh, as their kind of serial running from week to week, the Phantom Raspberry Blower. Yeah. And it actually said in the opening titles of the serial bit at the end, written by Spike Milligan. Yeah. It wasn't in it. I knew who Spike Milligan was. But it was, was sort of jarring, wasn't it? It was like, oh, how, but, oh, yeah. that's... 
Yeah. But I, I, maybe that was the first thing. I thought, oh, this, was, this was written. And, yeah. and, you know, and there was the comics, there was the Young Ones book. And so you could see, oh, work out, there's these people that have written this book. And then also there was the Comic Strip Presents, and they had a script book. Mm. So you could then kind of study yeah. these. But it, it, I mean, it's, part, it's, it's the same for me because we are from the pre internet age. Um, and we're talking about books here, which some yeah, people may yeah. may not quite remember. But um, but in those days, people didn't want to be writers. People didn't. They may have wanted to be novelists, but being screenwriters and TV writers and radio writers, it was like just wasn't really a, a thing. Whereas actually, kids these days, I think, are aware that it's a career. Yeah. Whereas me, a dairy farmer's son uh, in Somerset, was just like. Oh, yeah. and even, even actually after university, I just assumed that I would be a journalist or something because TV writing is something that other people did. I didn't. I didn't mm. do that. But now it seems to be more. So, so, so. At what point did the two of you? At what point did he whip out his secret book and say to you, Andy, look, oh, you, you and me, we're going to do this? Not, not for ages. There, there was lots of collaborations from when we were about um, sixteen onwards. Uh, the first one was a leaflet. Okay. Now, the first thing we wrote together was a leaflet, which I still have, for um, a local voluntary organisation called Aylesbury Youth Action. Right. <laughs> and it had, uh, and, and it had, it had a drug yeah. reference in it as well, which, wow. was, which, which had, to, had to be cleared at a high level. <laughs> <laughs> but, but eventually it was, it was decided the drug reference was okay. Then um, we, uh, we went to this kind of pushy selective grammar school. Mm-hmm. And uh, we both... Oh, we were in bands as well. We were in a couple of different bands. Then we, we the, that's, this pushy selective grammar school meant that we both ended up at Oxford University at the same time. Right. Um, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do this sort of fortnightly comedy club thing had Kevin not been doing it. Oh, okay. Kevin, Kevin went down and did that and said, come and have a look at this. Um, and uh, Is it what the Footlights call smokers sort of thing, is it? Yeah, the... it was called the Oxford Review Workshop. And then we changed it to something like Comedy Cellar. The Comedy Cellar, because it thought was a bit wanky for yeah. the name. So, um, so yes, I think it was like that. It was more like, I think it's a bit more like a stand, it was kind of like a stand. Yeah, okay. I mean, sketch. I, I didn't do any sketch comedy as a, I, I helped write a few sketches right. as a student. But what I really was, you see, was my, my performing influence uh, was John Otway. And this is this is real Aylesbury stuff, right? Um, but John Otway is a man who's been around since the early seventies, who has a, 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 an act as a musician that is more or less a comedy act, right? Because he does lots of falling around off the stage. He can barely sing. He can't really play instruments. But he, he's this extraordinary performer. And when I saw John Otway in nineteen eighty six in Aylesbury, I thought when I was sixteen, I thought. Oh, that's a thing I could do. I can play, you know, I can use a guitar as a tennis racket. I'd always loved Mike Harding and Jasper Carrot. So yeah. that's where I was coming from. Feel cool. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. Uh, that and then now I, I, I don't really go in for comedy songs. I don't, certainly don't write them. But then I thought, well, that's, that's the sort of thing I like. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And so um, you, you, you got churned out of university and then did that leap? What, what, so what... Uh, when was the first time you got paid money uh, for some oh, not, comedy? Not long after. Um, I was pretty much straight after. I yeah. mean, it was 1991, so there was a recession on. 
So there weren't any jobs. I think I applied for one job, which was Procter and Gamble, who turned me down. I also applied to yeah, them because yeah. I went to Durham, which is big up in the northeast, and right, they also okay. turned me down because okay. I was. They weren't convinced I really wanted to work. No, them. I think that was the same thing here. Did you have the thing? I did you have the? But I got a night in Newcastle, which was yeah. quite wow. Exciting. Wow, this, this, is, this is now mainly a Procter and Gamble podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's about, about people about from the pharmaceutical industry. industry. Yeah, yeah. 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 Procter and Gamble, you're hearing this. You could have yeah, had us. Yeah. The first thing, first thing we did was uh, weekending on Radio Four, ah. which during the seventies, eighties, and, and the nineties was the way in which you could get into the comedy writing business. Hmm. If you asked anyone in the profession, "How do I start off as a comedy writer?" the answer would always be, "Go and write uh, for, yeah. for weekending." At that time, you could literally walk in off the street. And, and people just, did, yeah. <laughs> so that's what we did. We didn't. We just um, walked in off the street, and someone at the at the desk said, "You can come to do weekending." Uh, they wrote you a pass, handed it to you, and then said, "Go up to the first floor." This is all pre nine eleven. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pre, but yeah. the things the IRA were, were, were still yeah. bombing London at the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, bearing in mind, I once bumped into Salman Rushdie in a corridor <laughs> at the heart of a fat one. Seriously, I did because there was a secret tunnel between one bit broadcasting house and the other. Oh, is that, I've never I've heard about this tunnel. Yeah. Is it yeah, real? Yeah. I don't no, know if, yeah, it's real. It's real. Very much love the tunnel. Going, yeah, well. I used to love the tunnel. And so we went to the non-commissioned writers meeting. Um, and the commissioned writers, we, we, we eventually became commissioned writers mm. after about five months. But the the non-coms, as mm. they were called, um, there'd be dozens of you crammed into yeah. this room. Jon Magnusson, who was the producer at the time, was sort of lang- would languidly sort of go, uh, oh, "Who's got anything about uh, Yugoslavia?" <laughs> and loads of hands would go up, and papers literally waving in the air, and you just had to pitch. You yeah, see. Yeah. And there was a tremendous drop-off um, because people would generally become discouraged after two weeks and not come back. Yeah. And I'd also notice that even if they did get something on, they'd only get a cheque for £13. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so that would kind of, yeah... Whereas for us, it was, it was the only game in town. So, um, and the, the heights that we knew we could hit is that um, uh, we knew from university um, Al Murray and Ben Moore. Right. Al Murray, who is obviously now the pub landlord. Yeah. But he wasn't there. And they were commissioned writers for weekending. They were earning each about oh, thirty-five pounds a week. Wow! Um, uh, doing writing. Which back projects. in the early nineties was yeah. still not a lot of money. No, exactly. <laughs> but it wasn't enough. To, certainly, it was not enough to come on income support. But for us, it was a big deal because wow, you can sell a joke. Yeah. It was something. It's access. And also, more, isn't it? more that you've heard your name on the radio. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. That is a real buzz, wasn't it? The first yeah. time you you yeah. hear your name read out. So, so someone bought our book um, called "You Wanted to See Me, Prime Minister" or something like that. And it, it lists every weekending sketch ever broadcast with who wrote it. Oh my goodness! It's a very thick book. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. So that's how we. But not, but 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 not not a terribly funny one, perhaps. Yeah. So we towards the end when I was getting the scraps of it just before it collapsed completely. So I think we started the same week as Harry Hill. Mm. Right. Okay. There was whatever whatever happened to that guy. Well, there was one time when in '92 when we were commissioned writers. And there was about nine or so commissioned writers who all had about like two minutes each guaranteed on the show. Ooh, big money. Yeah. Um, Gareth Edwards at that time was the producer who now uh, does done a lot of Mitchell and Ware. And amongst that team, you had Al Murray, Ben Miller, Anil Gupta, who went on to become the executive producer of The Office. Um, who else? Uh, uh, Georgia Pritchett was in there, who's yeah. uh, worked on Veep and lots of other things lately. It really um, is about it. Really is about being part of it, though, isn't it? I mean, that's. Advice to young writers, you know, which is always at the back of my mind for this podcast, is often, 
sort of being in the right place, but with people who are also doing the sort of thing you're doing. Yeah. And that's why I'm always encouraging people, do, do Edinburgh, not because it's necessarily right for you, but because that's where the other people are doing what you're trying to do. Yeah, are. yeah. And they'll become your friends and mm. you will sharpen yeah, so each other one or two useful connections that will yeah that'll help yeah you it's like the people know you know this might be a live sketch show you can go and do or something like that yeah. there was TBA around the time we were starting and did you put yourselves you didn't put yourselves through the furnace of an Edinburgh show or anything did you or? no a couple of times yeah I mean but students not, yeah not, okay not, students not so, okay okay yeah. I mean we'll talk about the specifics of uh, sitcom in particular uh, in the next uh, part as it were but just talking about your writing partnership, in one sense, it feels like it was a, a given from day one. Really, uh, is that is that fair? Was there? But I mean, obviously, you you do other things a little bit as well. But um, was that always really the plan? Is like we are going to be writing together, or well, there was know, no plan. I guess. <laughs> How long can we get less, away with this? Less plan than that. Um, it's. Uh, uh, I, I don't recall a moment where we said we will become professional writers today. Yeah, it in twenty happens. years' time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. And what do you think? Because um, I've ended up in a writing partnership relatively late. I wrote a lot of stuff on my own, and then I met Richard. Yeah, that's Hurst. unusual. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, through through working on Miranda uh, together. But um, but a lot of people were at school together or university yeah. together. What do you What do you feel? the other one brings to it? Is, is there stuff that you know that the other one is stronger at this or that or is it completely interchangeable? I mean, for example, for me, for Richard, I think Richard is a brilliant finisher. He's got such a great eye for detail. He'll just see everything through to the end. But I'm bored of it <laughs> by, <laughs> by, by a certain point and he's really good at that. I'm quite a good starter with a blank page where right. I'll just chuck out 50 ideas and he'll just basically go, here are three really strong ones. Right. Um, I don't think we're massively different, actually. Okay. Um, I don't think there's anything... In, I mean, Kevin may disagree with me here, but I don't think there's anything that one of us does that the other one really doesn't do. No, I, I don't think so. I think we're probably... Yeah, I mean, there's... Cut from similar cloth, um, comedic... Kev, Kev, yeah, Kevin's got a particular tenacious quality if something isn't quite working. Right. Um, I am probably slightly more likely to kind of gloss over it because I'll fix it later or something. <laughs> so it's the, the sort of stuff that you know is at the back of your mind. But I think we, I honestly think we sort of take it in turns to be bad cop. You yeah. Know? Yeah. There will be times right. where I will, will come in and 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 you'll go, oh, I don't know about this. Like a really, really yeah. obvious, amazing character we came up with, and I go, no, because it's not because of this, and I go. Mm. Oh, you're right. Okay, yeah, let's look yeah. at it again. So you've got this, and then other times I'll go, you know, you like yeah. a dog with a bone, whatever. So I'm quite good at history and spelling. Yeah, <laughs> and much better spelling than me. Much better spelling, and also I think I've got a better short-term memory, and Andy's got a better long-term memory. Wow. Okay. So yeah. I'm really good at remembering things of the last couple. Yeah, of months. I, I know what we did 20 years ago. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. How do you resolve joke arguments? Um, in terms of, you know, I, when I get these, you know, we we always end up usually with a third way that we're both really happy with. Yeah, that's the way. Do you, do you tend to way. do that? Yeah, because in yeah. the end, you, I mean, we don't have that many, but the, yeah, it's normally that you just have to have another look at it. And eventually there is some new way that, that you've neither of you thought of to start with that everyone can live with and, and hopefully is better than either of one of those things. Yeah, no, I can, yeah, it's, it's hard to negotiate though, isn't it? And what do you feel... I mean, this is a sitcom podcast, so that's what we're mostly interested in. Yes. What, what do you feel most got you ready for writing sitcoms? You know, what 
what got you to that place where you were able to write half because that's a long yeah, long yeah. Well, we, did, long... yeah we did a few years where we just did sketches really early on and then by about 95 we were 94 we are thinking no, we, we must do it oh no earlier than that we did a radio pilot called Yeah 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 set in the 1960s that was our first half hour um, that took ages yeah that, that took ages the, there was a particular moment though where we, we got a bit of a break that changed the way that other people were looking at us where um uh, we did a sitcom that we wrote for the Channel 4 Sitcom Festival at right. the Riverside Studios. This is in 1996. And um, it was called Bleeding Hearts, and it was about a charity. Now, some sitcoms that were, it, sitcoms were performed live in front of an audience. There were no cameras around. So it was just a low-budget way to sort of pilot some shows. And... When, although our show didn't really get developed by Channel 4, there was a lot of people in the comedy industry who came along. And we did about eight or nine meetings off the back of that, of people thinking, ah, these two can write a half hour. And that's when I started to think, yeah, no, yeah, we can, we can do it. Um, I mean, there's been many occasions since where I go, oh, shit, I can't do it. <laughs> well, your, your confidence flees. Yeah. But that was, that was a very big moment, that one. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, sketches are the way in, aren't they, in terms of... Thinking, treating little scenes well, as not, sketches. Well, not for everyone, but they were for us. I mean, you know, yeah. we really started from the bottom and worked our way up, you know, from writing lots of jokes and sketches and short sketches and longer yeah. sketches. We did a lot of topical comedy as well. So we wrote for Spitting Image, we worked on, you know, the Armistice and things like that. And that means that you are seeing your things go out very, very quickly. And so you can sort of see what the problems are. Yeah, you, learn you, from them. you learn super fast. Hmm. Um, I remember at that time when we were doing the armistice, that I, I, met, um, I met an old friend of mine um, uh, at the Soho house um, who was in the advertising business. And I was talking to some of his advertising friends. Me and Kev had this idea back then that um, the grass was greener over in advertising. So we were always trying to angle to, to get do some ad writing. Um, you only had to write one yeah, joke. Well, I, did, I discovered, you know, no, you have to steal one joke from a comedy <laughs> show. That's how it works. Um, let's be <laughs> honest. We've all, every comedy writer at some stage in their career has had stuff jacked by yeah. the advertising profession. Um, but I found out that these people around about our age had had less made in their entire career than we had had uh, broadcast last night um, on just one show of, of the, the Armistice. And I thought, oh, God, I want to be over there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, the grass always seems greener, but when you add it up, it's like people who work in movies, you know, uh, lots of people only ever want to write movies and they seem to spend an awful lot of time rewriting something. Mm. And uh, and actually, if you're writing a whole TV series, mm. you know, well, that's, that's three well, hours. Of, writing, <laughs> that's three hours right there. Writing a TV series, having no experience of writing and saying, okay, I'm going to write a comedy series. Um, it's like going to a gym and seeing one of the heaviest dumbbells and saying, right, I'm going to pick that up. Now, you may be naturally strong. Maybe you can naturally pick it up. But for a lot of people, you think, well, they start on the smaller weights, like the sketches, and then we'll build up to the, the slightly bigger weights. And you're actually, that bigger weight, you may be able to get it off the ground, but it will break you. <laughs> <laughs> it will hurt you and you will never yeah. walk again. <laughs> That's true. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, for you were saying that sketches isn't the way in for everyone, but I guess we've got a generation of people coming through now for whom... You know, there is access to media. You can make your own podcast, you mm. know, crap like this. But also you can do YouTube and all that kind mm. of stuff. And I wonder if, because uh, I know that, Kev, you have done reading for uh, script uh, competitions and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm interested to know, 
what sort of mistakes people are making in their kind of uh, first scripts and that kind well, of stuff. Are you noticing any trends or anything like that? I, I don't know. I, would, I just did it. And actually, the scripts this year were very, very good. Oh, so annoying. I would say, <laughs> I would say, well, you know, I don't think, I don't think there was a trend this year, but I would say overall, certainly what I've noticed in the past is you get shows where you think you haven't researched that well enough. So it's set in, I don't know, a shoe shop or something, but it doesn't feel like they've ever been in a shoe shop or talked to someone who worked in a shoe shop and actually that isn't a very hard thing to do compared to actually coming up with characters and jokes and things so go and do your research know what your know your world so and also i don't know that people always realize the amount of work that you have to do before you're ready to write a script the, the amount of preparation you should do character work and you know work on jokes work on, work on what's interesting or the conflict and so just put put the prep in, I think. Yeah, yeah. So so lack of believability of the world, lack of detail, lack of credibility, I guess, is one thing that's stuck out for you. Yeah, well, it has done. No, I mean, obviously not for everything. There yeah. were some good things this year, but that's something that I think is... Have you picked up on... Do you, do you read many rookie scripts or have you spent most of your time trying to avoid that? Um, uh, a few years ago, I, I, for some reason, I don't know why, people would... would con- they've stopped doing it now. Because it got become less popular. But I, I have, a, have a website with an open email address. Um, Lucky Heather Comic at googlemail.com. Uh, anyone can email me on that. Um, and um, I ended up uh, sort of looking over a few people's You're going to get bombed with scripts, right? You do yeah. realise that. Well, look, I can't promise I'm going to read any of the things. Um, and also, it takes a long time to respond. I find that I couldn't sort of read it once and give a couple of pieces of advice back. I had to really go into it deep. Um, and, 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 and like really get to grips with the thing that's why you should the, generally say no it's so <laughs> yeah, time consuming that's right it does save time and that's, that's why I do mostly say no but the, the my advice to anyone who's just written a script is particularly if it's a first episode of a new sitcom is uh, the your story doesn't start early enough your story is starting on about page eight. And you can say that really without looking at it because everybody does that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, the first ones that we did were certainly like that. And then uh, as you, then you realise that actually, no, you should be hitting the story hard at the top of page two. Yeah. Um, you yeah, that's true. You always think I've got to set up the world. No, 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 no. You get the story, get the story rolling Yeah. A bit of business. Yeah, yeah. It, it's that thing of having a scene where all the characters talk to each other and you establish, well, you know, she's the grumpy one, uh, he's... Um, Tall but stupid, yeah. and some of all that, and then and somebody says, "How long have we been brothers?" Yeah, you know. yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then the story kind of gets going. No, you must roll it earlier than that, yeah. and, and explore. Especially that. now, I would say that may have, yeah. that may have worked decades ago. Yeah, but now it's. I think so, and it's way harder. I think to get away with the sort of thing where you've only got like one set and it's all one big scene, compared to like smaller scenes. I think I think that's a very hard thing to pull, to pull off. It almost seems um, that one scene thing because it's always appealed to me, but it feels that's a writer's vanity to try and make that work because what you've written there is a play, mm. and part of me always thinks, "Oh, wouldn't it be great just for the whole first act to be one long scene?" Mm. To which, and actually, it's um, a lesson I learned working with Miranda. To her great credit, she would Rich and I would come up with grand schemes and ideas, and wouldn't it be cool if? And she was quite frequently say, along the lines of, I know you think it would be clever, but the audience really doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 
You think you're absolutely right. Miranda really, really understands her audience and knows what they're interested in and what they're not interested in. So the idea of trying to make it all work as one long accident, you just think, you don't get points for that. It doesn't. Well, only we, other writers might be we, slightly impressed. We have actually done it once. We've only once have we written anything remotely like that, and it was one episode of Black Books where the first half uh, was was one long scene, and the second half was one long scene, and uh, it got the BAFTA. Oh, okay. <laughs> it can work. Yeah, it can so, work. So we did a Miranda episode where she's in the psychiatrist. Yeah, that was great. And it's half hour of real time. Yeah, yeah. that worked. But it's so what us- we're saying actually is this is what you should do. Actually. But but it's once you're up and running for variety, it's fine because that's just yeah. the lift yeah. episode, isn't it? It's yeah. the trapped in a well, lift. My, my eyes get a little bit itchy. Episode five of series two is always yeah. trapped in a lift. There was a time I, I don't recall who it was at the BBC, but there was a whole spell where there was a lot of series coming out which were that kind of two three people in a thing like Roger and Val and, and smoking and room. The smoking room. And, stuff. and I think there was someone at the BBC who thought, well, not only is this cheap, but this is a sort of comedic purity that we like. I just like to see things like this. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, there's nothing wrong with this format, but but you know, let's let's have more sort of shows with lots of little scenes that move quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and it really is. Somebody did a. I saw on via Twitter somebody done an analysis of Seinfeld and how many scenes there are in every episode yeah. as the series goes by, and. The, the, the later series have way more scenes than yeah. the early series and I think just the narrative of TV generally has to, we were talking about Parks and Rec before we started yeah. recording yeah. and boy that crunches through scenes mm. fast and story as well and story um, but I guess we'll come on to that when we talk about your uh, excitement in America now, how often do these podcasts come out? Uh, fortnightly alright then so we've got to stay here for two weeks so two we'll, weeks okay, we'll stay here we'll for two weeks, weeks. Fine, uh, stock up on food and um, I think we'll, so we'll wrap this part up here we don't really do that we don't really do that uh, you're breaking the magic uh, you, thank you very much for being here Kevin thank Andy you. we'll speak to you again in a moment yeah you no, can, in two weeks, in two weeks yeah, not two a moment for two weeks uh, you can email us at sitcomgeeks at gmail.com email us anything but please do not email us your sitcoms uh, we um, have had one or two email yeah. them to Andy yeah I'm, I might not read them <laughs> Uh, it just just simply because there's always that risk where uh, you, you read something and it's actually a bit like something that you're working on. Exactly. And then suddenly you think, oh no, I've got to not read. I will say I will not read your sitcoms if you email them to me, but I might if you enter for Rockcliffe BAFTA. That's the way to do it. competition every year, uh, which I've been a judge for for the last five years and. And does amazing things for the writers who including been, fly them to New York including flying them which to New York which in itself is worth worth yeah. doing it just for that so yeah the BAFTA one is a, is a good one BAFTA Rockcliffe BAFTA Rockcliffe yeah which is the one to enter thank you very much to Katie our producer bye and thank you to Rushforth Media for hosting us and we'll speak to you next time bye bye <laughs>